Welcome to the sermon podcast of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Our mission is to respond to God's love by following Jesus and loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. If you're in Knoxville, we'd love for you to join us in person. In the meantime, enjoy this message from God's Word. Good morning and welcome again. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's really good to see you this morning, and it's really good to see you from, from this perspective up here looking out on this, on this group. We have had a, a great summer. Hope you had a, had a great summer as well. I think the overwhelming feeling for me coming out of it is, is gratitude, uh, gratitude for some time with our family. It's been a, a big year for our family, and so it's great to get some time together, especially as we sent off our, our second kid to, to college. Gratitude for the, the preachers who came and, and shared with us this summer as I worship beside you in the pews. I know I was helped by their gifts, by their perspectives. Trust you were uh, also. Uh, gratitude for our great staff and our officers and our members who have put really good plans in place for this upcoming ministry year. It's uh, an exciting season in the life of our church. And gratitude too for some, some missions travel and the vaccine that enabled me to go and do it. Me and my whole family have been vaccinated and that enabled us to go on this, this trip, my wife and I, to, to Athens and Lesbos in Greece. And just be amazed again at the size of our God. While we were there, we saw uh, refugees being housed. We saw women being cared for and protected. We saw Muslims being converted. We saw churches that are being planted. We saw our God and some of what he is up to. And not just that, but also saw some of what we as a church get to be involved, involved with and, and involved in. Really um, humbling to be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. But now I'm grateful to be back in the pulpit and to be opening up God's word with you to Ephesians chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me. Ephesians 3, we're going to start in verse 14, and I'm going to read through to the end of verse 21. So let me read this to you. Ephesians 3:14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would come once more and be our teacher. The things this passage speaks of are so exalted, a love that is, that is beyond knowledge, that we understand that, that we can't fully grasp these things. We can't get our hearts and our minds around them unless you come by the power of your Spirit and make it so. And yet you have promised to come and do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. So do that, we pray, in these moments, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This week, we're starting a new sermon series called Live Deeply. We're going to spend the first three weeks of this series working our way through our our mission statement, and then we're going to spend the rest of the fall working verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus shows us what a a deep life looks like, uh, a life of of meaning and purpose and of joy. So today, we start our three-week look at our mission statement, and this is our mission statement. To respond to God's love by following Jesus in loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. And today we look at the first line of this statement. Our mission is to respond to God's love. Our mission statement starts with our why. Why does our church exist? Answer, to respond to the love of God. Why are we here to respond to God's love? Isn't that a gospelicious start to a mission statement? Because we don't start with us, we start with God. We don't start with all the things we're going to do, we start with what God has done. The assumption is God has done something, and in response, in response to his initiation, we are now going to do something, something else. And what is it that God has done? We answer He has loved us. He has loved us. Do you know this morning that he loves you? And don't answer too quickly, because I don't just mean theoretically. In the abstract, intellectually, you understand you're meant to believe there's a thing called a God, and he has this thing called love for you. It might sound basic to ask if you know that God loves you, especially if you've been around in the church for a while. But what I'm really asking is, are you held by that love this morning? Do you operate out of the love of God for, for you? My wife, Rosie, and I, we were married at 18 and 19 years young. We were married in June. We had a baby in August. It's part of our story I'd love to tell you more about sometime. We set up life in an apartment in Edinburgh, and we were both very happy and very broke. I was a student at the University of Edinburgh. Rosie was staying home, looking after our new baby. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. Now, there is a tendency, isn't there a tendency to exaggerate those days? You know, we walked uphill barefoot both ways in the snow, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or, you know, you know the way when people tell a story, the fish always gets bigger, right? Every time I tell this story, the apartment we lived in gets smaller. You know, there is a, there's a tendency to exaggerate those days. But one of the things that really was true, that at that time, um, we, whenever we went to the grocery store, Rosie never bought orange juice. Why? Because orange juice is expensive. Think back to the days, maybe you're in those days now, when you're going around the grocery store, keeping a running total of how much you've spent in your head as you put things in the cart. Well, when you're in this phase of life, you don't buy orange juice because orange juice is expensive. But here's the funny thing. Fast forward 20 years. Guess what my sweet bride still doesn't do? She still doesn't buy orange juice. Now listen, time out for a second. Nobody goes into ministry for the money, right? And if they are, they're stupid, okay? Right? (laughs) Wrong field. 
But I want you to know as a church, we have zero complaints. You guys look after us. We can afford orange juice, okay? No emailing the elders this week, right? We, we are very, we can, afford, we, can, we can afford to buy orange juice, and yet Rosie doesn't. Why? Because there's a sense in which while she has the resources, the resources don't have her. She isn't operating out of the abundance that she now has. And isn't that the way when it comes to the love of God? On one hand, I believe I have the love of God. I believe I'm a ridiculous creature made new by grace. I believe my sin is forgiven. I believe I have purpose and meaning and joy today. I believe I have bright hope for tomorrow. And I believe the best is yet to come in life everlasting. I I believe that. And yet, on the other hand, while I have the love of God, the love of God doesn't always have me. The words of Brennan Manning, a one-time soldier and author and lifelong alcoholic, resonate with me. Manning wrote, when I get honest, I admit that I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe. You believe in the love of God? Good. But don't you also doubt? I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) So my question to you this morning is, do you have the love of God? Does it have you? Maybe you... Maybe you're held by it and you're living with freedom and purpose and joy and I I celebrate because that's where we're trying to get to. But maybe you're more like me and it's just a little more inconsistent. Sometimes when you think of Christianity, when you think of the church, when you think of all that goes into our faith, you are alive and yet sometimes you find yourself fearful. Sometimes you find yourself guilty. Sometimes you find yourself distracted. Sometimes you find yourself bored that while you have these resources, these resources don't always have you, that while you have abundant love in Christ, you don't always operate out of that place that spiritually speaking, you find you still don't buy orange juice. What does God have to say about all of that? Enter Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, which is one of the most staggeringly beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It's a prayer where Paul prays not that God would love us, he, he already does, but that we would be held by the love that God has for us, that we would begin to operate out of it. So let's look at this prayer together. We're going to start in verse 14. We're going to enjoy our way through the rest of the passage. Let's look down at verse 14. Verse 14, the praying has not actually begun because before Paul starts to pray, he reminds himself and he reminds us of who it is that he's praying to. So before I start to pray, I'm just going to remember, take a breath, breathe, and remember who it is that I am praying to. And in particular, he draws out three aspects of of God's character. First of all, in verse 14, he reminds himself that he's praying to a powerful God. I bow my knees, he says, before the Father. 
It is right and it is good, according to the scriptures, that we would engage our physical bodies in, in worship. The scriptures are, are full of this. And, and so if you're a, a hand raiser or an amener or a hand clapper or anything else, you have biblical warrant for it. Praise the Lord. We are to engage our bodies in worship. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is kneeling. Why? As an expression of awe before before a powerful God. He's saying, you are God and I am not. You are, you are infinite and I am finite. You are the creator and I'm just the creature. So what else would I do when I come into your presence but bow? Secondly, though, he's not just praying to a powerful God. He's also praying to, look, the personal God. I bow my knees before who? Before the Father. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. When we come to our God, we don't just come to God Almighty, the one who is power beyond our very imagining, but we also come to to the God who loves us, to the God who cares about us, to the God that we call Father. Yes, he is powerful, but he is also very personal. And thirdly, look, powerful, personal, but also generous. (laughs) Verse 16, Paul says God will answer his prayer. How? According to the riches of his glory. Do you know how rich God is? Do you know how able he is to meet all of our needs? God has inexhaustible resources at his disposal, and he is pleased to marshal them for the welfare of his children. So when you put these three things together, we come to the God who is powerful and personal and generous. Let the prayer begin. Let's have a sense of expectation and anticipation that this God will hear and answer our prayers. Well, when we get to the prayer itself, we see that it follows a very careful structure. It follows a threefold structure. Paul makes three requests, each of which builds on the previous one. It's like three steps in a staircase that takes him to his, his ultimate point. So let's, let's climb this staircase together. First, step one, he prays in verse 16 that God would, you see it there, grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What does Paul pray for the Ephesians by extension? What would Paul's heart be for, for, for us today, for you sitting here in in the pew that you're in this morning, the answer is that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Isn't that a great thing to pray for? That your very soul would be strong. That you'd have steel in your spine and an iron in your gut. That you'd be fortified and braced and invigorated to deal with whatever life would throw at you. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit within you. Who doesn't want some of that? Sign me up for, I I want this. But look, this is just step one. It's not the conclusion Paul is praying for. It's just step one that takes us to step two. Step one, he wants us to be strengthened in order that step two, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Did you see the connection there in the text in in front of you? Step one, be strengthened. 
Step two, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith and you would know the love of Christ. Be strengthened that you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. You understand this morning that God wants you to know that he loves you. How quick we, we lose sight of the basic tenet of Christianity. That it's not about proving our love for him, it's about receiving his love for us. And so God tells us, verse 17, he wants us to be rooted and grounded in his love. He wants us to be rooted like a tree, finding our life and our nutrients and our nourishment from the love of God. He wants us to be grounded like the foundation of a house, finding our strength and our stability in the love of God. Verse 18, he wants you to know the breadth and length and height and depth of his love for you. We ask, how broad is the love of God? And we say, broad enough to cover every sin and mistake and shame and guilt that you have or could ever have in your life. We say, okay, well, how long is the love of Christ? Ephesians answers, um, eternal. That before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon you and that it will continue from eternity past into eternity future. That, that there are, how do you put a clock on God's love for you? There, there, there's, no way, there's no way to do it. It is, it is eternal. Well, how high is the love of God, we ask, as high as the heavens are above the earth? So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How deep is the love of Christ? The scriptures answer that it descends not only to the deepest ocean, but to the cross itself, where Christ drinks the deepest measure of God's wrath so that we can be saved by him. God wants you to know that he loves you, and he wants you to know here in Ephesians 3 that the dimensions of his love are immeasurable. Basil Pennington, Roman Catholic monk and priest, once wrote, it is surprising how we fight against love's accepting what we do not want to accept in ourselves, our defective, wounded, malicious self. Let me read the first half of that quote again, because it took a while to sink into my bones. It is surprising how we fight against love's accepting what we do not want to accept in ourselves. Friends, there may be things about your story that you don't like. There may be aspects of your life that bring you shame or guilt. There may be ways in which your present makes you feel embarrassed or ashamed. There may be things about you physically, spiritually, emotionally, professionally that make you feel unworthy and make you feel unworthy of love. And it's okay, we can talk about those things, but just don't ever think that God feels about you the way that you feel about you. He accepts the things we don't accept in ourselves. 
He has made his heart toward us known in the scriptures. And his heart toward us is love. And friends, sometimes submission to the word of God. Any authority in the pulpit is only found and carried in the authority of of the word of God. All of us here together in this room submit to the authority of God's word, which is perfect and, and without error and alone gives us the words of eternal life. And you know, sometimes submission to the word of God means I'm going to submit to really accepting that you love me. That my opinion of me is not as important as your opinion of me. Step two, that we would know the love of Christ. But, hold on, that's only step two. (laughs) We haven't even got to the conclusion of the prayer. We haven't even got to the thing that Paul is actually praying for. Now, I didn't realize this. Before I dove into this passage, I was familiar with it because it's one of the kind of famous passages in the Bible. And I've said, I'd have said to you, oh yeah, that's the passage where Paul prays that we would know that, that God loves us. Well, yes, that's true, but only as a means to another end. Look, step one, be strengthened so that step two, you'd have the strength to know God loves you. The scriptures say, in order that step three, verse 19 you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is Paul praying for in this passage? Yes, strength. Yes, an awareness of love. But why? In order that step three, we might be filled with all the fullness of God. The thing he is praying for, the end he has in mind, what he really wants is for you and I to be filled with all the fullness of God. And I say, that sounds awesome. What on earth does it mean? What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, it helps us when we see that Paul, who wrote Ephesians, uses this phrase, that the fullness of God, as as a description to, to refer to Jesus himself. So, for example, Colossians 1, verse 19, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or Colossians 2, verse 9, for in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, when when Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, he is praying that we would be filled with Jesus himself. That we wouldn't just have Jesus, but that Jesus would would have us. Now, as we talk about these things, we start to drift toward the edge, the limits of human vocabulary. It's hard to fully explain them. We think of passages like Psalm 131, where we are unable to occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. But yet, we can also taste the significance, can we not? That Jesus is not content to say, hey, you, Cedar Springs, listen up, be strengthened Know that I love you. Now run along and have a good day. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. Try not and break too many, too many of the rules. That that's just not what Jesus is after here. That that's not what Jesus is, is hoping for here. His hope is to fill us, not just with strength, not just with knowledge, but with himself. In the language of John 15, he wants to abide in us and us in him. He wants to abide in us and us in him. He desires the most intimate relationship imaginable. It's not just one flesh. It's it's union at the level of our very souls. 
So the point is that when Paul prays that we'd be filled with his fullness, he's praying not just that we would have Jesus, but that Jesus would have us. That we just wouldn't have the love of God, but that the love of God would have us. Let me tell you a story about someone who really got this. And, by a church, and about a church that, that got it through him. Told to me by a, a pastor friend of mine, imagine a church with me, if you will, a large suburban church in the suburbs of a city with a red carpet, white, pew, white pews, and brass chandeliers, right? The story isn't about our church, but can you imagine such a place, right? <laughs> Well, one Sunday morning, there's a little bit of commotion at the door uh, because um, a a very um, bedraggled, alcohol-smelling homeless man has arrived at the door, and the ushers aren't quite sure what to do with him. And so uh, the heart of their people begin to show through because, well, what do you do? And you take him into worship, and you sit down with him in in worship. And... um, you know, he, he sits through the service and away he goes and nobody's quite sure what to make of it until, wonder of wonders, he comes back the next week. And that's really, you know, that's the test of a true church. It's easy for someone to visit once. The question is, did they come back, <laughs> right? Have we loved them to the point that they actually want to come back? And if you are, if this is your first Sunday with us, that's what we hope your experience will be, <laughs> that you'll desire to come back because you know this is a place that that cares for you. Well, this church was that for this man. This man whose name was Dave and who in time came to be known because of his disheveled appearance. Uh, The children thought he looked like a pirate, so his name became Pirate Dave, okay? (laughs) Kind of affectionate thing in the life of the church. So here's Pirate Dave worshiping in this, you know, very nice button-down Presbyterian church, coming week in, week out. Nobody's quite sure what to make of it until one week through the preaching of the gospel and the ordinary means of grace, Pirate Dave comes to Christ. Isn't that good? Just a reminder that um, God saves all by grace, and that's the only way he saves. And if there's any hope for us, there has to be hope for Pirate Dave, because that's how how the gospel goes. And so there's great joy and there's great celebration, but of course that doesn't mean that, listen, becoming Christian doesn't mean all your troubles are over. And if you're an alcoholic, that doesn't mean that it's suddenly magic away. And so Dave becomes a part of this community, and they love him, and they walk alongside him, and they start to unfold him into the life of the church. They think, yeah, let's give him a job. You know, service is a good thing. That's part of discipleship. Let's give him a job. They gave him the job of handing out the bulletins to people as, as they came in until one Sunday he dropped all the bulletins, at which point he then dropped the F-bomb, and they realized, we need to give Dave a job that's further away from the children, Okay. <laughs> He's worshiping, living, loving in that church. When one Sunday it comes to the Lord's table. Perhaps the most solemn moment in the Presbyterian liturgy. And Dave's sitting on the back row where, where he always sat. And the pastor's up front. And the pastor starts, you know, the words of institution. On the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And as he's saying these words, from the back, he sees Pirate Dave get up and march right down and sit in the very front pew. Pastor's sort of not really sure what to do about it, so he does what all Presbyterian pastors do when they don't know what to do, which is act like nothing's happened and keep going, okay? <laughs> so on he goes. Uh, Lord just took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. As he finishes those words, Pirate Dave's shoulders start to go, and he starts to weep. The pastor 
falling back on the only thing he knows how to do, which is keep on going, picks up the cup and says, in the same manner after supper, Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples saying, this blood is the, and as he's starting those words, Pirate Dave just lets out a wail. A cry that can no longer be ignored. So a couple of the people in the church get up and they go over and they put their arms around him and the pastor's kind of standing there giving the side eye to everyone, not really sure what to do. And then suddenly, Pirate Dave stands up, comes in front of the very table, looks at the pastor and says, Pastor, I'm sorry. The gospel's just really kicking my butt. And that, dear Cedar Springs, is the PG version. (laughs) We're not ready for what really happened, okay? (laughs) What was happening in that moment? Everything he had suddenly had him. The abundance he had in Christ was operating in him. And do you know what happened next? At the back, some old member stood up and started to applaud. And one by one, the rest of the congregation stood up and applauded too. Why? Because they saw the gospel kick a man's butt and they knew that they needed it too. (laughs) And friends, isn't that, why are we here as a church to respond to the love of God? (laughs) Isn't that our prayer for for our church? That we wouldn't be a people, like a nice people having a nice gathering, doing nice things, paying our bills on time and helping old ladies across the street and generally living nice, respectable, middle-class lives. No, our prayer for our church is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that everything we have in him would hold us, that we would operate out of this thing called grace, out of this thing called Love that we would be a people who are being changed by the love of God, whose lives are different because of the love of God, who are operating differently because of the love of God. And not only would that happen to us, but we'd be a people who stand and applaud when it happens to others. Now, focus on your heart for a second and ask, what are you feeling in this moment? Do you sense any cynicism? Is there any doubt? Does this sound idealistic? That God, you know, that God's love's really gonna change us? Maybe we've struggled with the things we've struggled with for so long. Maybe you're just beat down and discouraged and don't think things could ever be any different. Or does it sound idealistic that the love of God would so change us that we would ourselves not, not only be different, but that we would have a, an impact on the city and this world? Do you, do you sense that? I think Paul wondered if we might feel that way, which is why he ends the prayer the way he does. Take a look down with me. Verse 20. Wondering if we might find this hard to believe, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Receive the word of God. 
believe in the word of God. Submit yourself to the word of God, which says there is a powerful, personal, generous God who will answer your prayers in a way that is far more abundant than anything we could ever have asked or imagined. These promises are the believers in Christ. Friends, center your life out of them on them, begin to operate out of them. Get up in the morning, consider, how am I gonna live and work and parent and relate as one who is deeply loved by God? Friends, don't let these promises go to waste. Why does our church exist? To respond to the love of God. Don't live like you're poor when you're rich in Christ. Live deeply. Spiritually, go get yourself some orange juice. Amen. Let me pray this prayer for us just now. Father, we bow our knees before you, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we pray to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.